the morning about break of day. That's when my baby went away. Trying and clean don't do me no good. Come back, baby, wish you would. Welcome to Personal Stories of St. James's. This is our ongoing series where we interview and get to know members of the St. James's community more deeply. This week, I am thrilled to interview Tom Tufts, who is a longtime leader of St. James's, whose life has taken him all over the world. Tom, thanks for joining us today. And I'm going to launch right in with a first question asking you, uh, where did you grow up and what was that like? I uh, grew up in uh, a town, it's a suburb of New York City called Rye, New York. Um, I was, I lived in a comfortable and idyllic setting in a remodeled home uh, with four siblings. We said uh, we were each three years apart, so we were, um, we were close, but we were not really that close. Often okay. Three years can be a long time. Long time, yeah. Between, um, and um, we um, said our prayers nightly and went to church on occasion. <laughs> we didn't have a car because, and church was too far to walk, so. Um, but we eventually got a car and drove to church. Um, we said our prayers nightly and went to church on occasion. At age 10, my life changed radically. I, um, took up my parents' offer to board at a choir school in New York City and provide the services of a chorister at the church of that um, school, which was um, St. Thomas. And um, in return for room and board. So it was a very generous offer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took it very seriously because I was thrilled to follow my father into New York City. <laughs> he went there every day and I finally got the opportunity to go myself. You, you went there to work too. <laughs> I did. I worked hard. Um, Are there photos anywhere of a young Tom Tufts in a cute little cassock and surplus? Um, does that is, does that exist? They might exist, but they've been scattered. My okay. brother got the photographs because I was in Africa when they were divided up. Okay. Um, let's see. At the choir school, I felt called to be a good student and to learn as well as I could, thinking as Samuel, 
then realize, son, that the voice of my conscience was God with me in the absence of family. Mm. And um, one of the questions you asked, what was one of the happiest moments of my life? Um, <clears throat> I think around this period, one happy moment was a Christmas, I remember. I was happy because we were all together. And um, my father had a guest. And she, um, she gave me a Christmas present that was a little bit amazing to me. It was a Bible, um, a very fancy Bible with uh, embossed gold, my name embossed in gold on it. <laughs> um, it was about an inch thick, even though it was the entire Bible. And... Uh, so I opened it up to find uh, a spot to read. And I came upon Psalm 27, <laughs> verse 10. Tom's going to track down his Bible as, as we as for listeners of the podcast. Um, verse 10 says, and I didn't notice it until many years later, I remember being struck at it, by it when I saw it, but it said, if my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand what that meant because I didn't have a sense that they were dumping me or anything like that. I felt honored to be where I was going. And, um, but that um, for those things that I didn't have, responsibilities I didn't understand, and um, the maturity that was I needed, I felt that the Lord would provide me with those in the absence of my parents. Mm -hmm. um, so I, that's the meaning I take it because I never felt forsaken by my mother and father. How um, obviously when they got older and passed, but mm -hmm. but not not at that time. At uh, how regu how regularly would you go home to Rye from from Midtown Manhattan? I go home every um, Sunday evening. Five o'clock, I'd walk down Fifth Avenue with my blue serge suit <laughs> and my army cap. You know, the little blue serge uh -huh. army caps that they used to wear. And um, in my suitcase full of dirty laundry for my mother <laughs> on Monday. And uh, walked to Grand Central Station, got on the train, took a ride, 25 minutes to ride. My father met me at um, the station in Rye. And then Monday, I'd have the day off. Oh, okay. And I could wander around our property and fantasize that that was my world. And, mm -hmm. um, and Monday evening, 
I would get on the train and go into New York. I'd meet my father at the station. We'd go out to dinner someplace. Hmm. And um, then we'd go to a movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's, that's wonderful. It was. And we went to a different foreign restaurant every week. <laughs> that's and, pretty. Um, that was unique, and it was. I really appreciated it. Um, and then I'd go back to the choir school, and go, everyone would be coming in at night. Mm -hmm. The next morning, we'd all wake up and begin our weekly routine. Yeah, right back to until it. Until the next Sunday evening, after Evensong, um, we would uh, get our suitcases or our baggage and go off to our respective destinations for the Monday. So it was, um, it was an, that's why it was idyllic. It was, a, we lived by um, large woods mm. right on Long Island Sound. And I had the area to myself on Mondays because weekends uh, there was a population from a nearby amusement park that would <laughs> be in the area. Um, so, um, Getting that Bible for that Christmas was one of the happiest times of my life mm. because I felt that immediately spoke to me or made me think about what was happening in my life. And um, I felt that God cared, that I knew that he cared. Mm. And, uh, But most of my happy times involve family. Mm -hmm. um, I remember one time I, when I was in Africa, I was interested in a four-year-old girl who had a hair lip, cleft palate, and a mm -hmm. cleft nose. And I took her to two unsuccessful surgeries and. Africa and finally the doctor said I needed to take her to some place in the States where they could build her up. And with the help of all sorts of people and um, especially a doctor from uh, the United States orthopedic surgeon who had in fact had exactly the same defect as a child. Huh. Um, she got her lip fixed. And in the meantime, there had been a war in, um, in uh, her country, Nigeria, the civil war there, in which a couple of million people starved to death mm. in that war. She had survived that. She had gone back um, to Laos, and to um, Africa from the uh, the Peace Corps had tracked her and sent her back. And she was quite the heroine when she got back because she could speak three or four languages. She, she had 
and uh, her life had and, taught her a lot. And when that was when that cycle was finished, until the moment I heard that she had been connected with her social worker from several years before, I didn't know where she was, or what was going on because I was in Laos. Mm -hmm. And when that worked out, it was just a really happy moment in my life. Um, she became a nurse's assistant or something in a hospital there. So um, those tended to be happy moments mm -hmm. for me. I was always happy to see my siblings and uh, so forth. So yeah, a lot of questions occurred to me as you were talking, um, but I, 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 one I do want to come back to is I'm um, singing even song for all those all those Sundays, and I don't know how many liturgies a week you were part of at St. Thomas during the during the week at the school. I'm curious how you th how you think that shaped your character or formed your your faith, or what what, what how is Tom the Christian now? a product of of Tom the uh, choir boy uh, a few years ago? Well, it, uh, we had a couple hours of practice every day. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> then there was a men's choir Sundays. We rehearsed with them. And it seemed like I was thrown in with all the big guys, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, us boys. <laughs> and uh, it was quite an honor to, to hear that sound of men mm. and choir together. And um, so the, the phrasing the music became very familiar to me. And, um, and the the relationship in which I was in those situations were, it was like a family. The choir was like a family. Mm -hmm. And the choir master was like a father because he, he was, uh, of course, strict. And, <laughs> and uh, so that's one way. Also, I did prayers in the evening, but I just did my own. Mm -hmm. And I was um, very conscious that in the absence of my father, I had the answer to, I didn't have somebody who would be like a father to me, hmm. except God. And so I, um, I had relationships with adults, but I always, the standard was always my father. Mm -hmm. And God uh, was in place of my father when uh, my father and I were separated. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's um, and that's surprising and um, interesting. That because certainly not every. Um, child that's with their parents less um 
uh, turns to God for, for that brand of nurture. Right. Well, um, so I, in addition, I had a lot of respect for my father. I had respect for his integrity and his mm -hmm. hard work. And he used to work weekends at home and pecking away on his typewriter. And, <laughs> um, and I saw how hard he worked around the yard and the house. And, um, I took part in those things. And <clears throat> as um, he got busy, I would take over more of things like cutting the grass, which in our yard took a couple of hours. Mm. He had to make space to. Yeah. Um, What was the most profound spiritual experience in my life? Well, as a young boy at St. Thomas, I remember one day we were, in addition to the other things that we did, we had, we were part of the Knickerbocker Grays, which was a youth group affiliated with the 7th Regiment in New York City. Not officially, but one of the, our uh, leader, the colonel, was a colonel also in the Knickerbocker Grays. And- um, What are the, so what, what, what were the Knickerbocker Grays? Uh, in the 7th Regiment. The Knickerbocker Grays were, young students in New York City who wanted military training. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and the idea was to um, give us drill twice a week, once in fatigues and once in dress uniform on Fridays. And uh, so that was another part of the formality and the discipline and so forth. Mm -hmm. And we had training films with those. And they were actual training films. Um, they were just straightforward. What's it like when you're going away from home for the first time and you uh, and you're uh, meeting friends and and uh, learning new things. Um, so at this memorial service, oh, so once a year on Memorial Day, we would, the Knickerbocker Grays would march down Park Avenue from the armory okay. to uh, St. Thomas Church. And um, the service would be full about 300 people. And um, there was a drum roll, very light drum roll and, and as the names were being read out. And <clears throat> we were watched very strictly to make sure our eyes never went anywhere except on the music in front of us mm -hmm. and the choir master sitting across the 
pew from us, the choir stall from us, watching us too. And all of a sudden there was this horrendous scream like I'd never heard before in my life. I'd never heard anything like it. And apparently it was a, uh, a participant in the service that had a heart attack. Oh. And <clears throat> in that moment, having heard this sort of death cry uh, that was so unlike anything I've heard before since I had a vision of what it all is about hmm. and how terrible war is. Hmm. And this is the uh, this is the result of our being at war and death, meaningless, terrifying death. Um, so that woke me up, that gave me a a sense looking forward of what I might expect over the course of my life. Mm. Um, and it was, it was a profound moment. Um, you asked, one thing you wanted to ask me about was what was the most important part of the story for, for me of Jesus? And um, <clears throat> at various points in my life, as I was beginning being converted from ages uh, five to 15, so um, <clears throat> there were uh, things that struck me. And one was Philippians, Six through 11, verses six through 11. Okay. Though in the form of God, Jesus Christ did not cling to equality with God, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being formed in human likeness, being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. I encountered this verse um, in graduate school, my first year in graduate school. And I was trying to, I had felt that because my education had been mostly literary and not uh, religious, I had missed something. And I wanted to get a closer sense of being with, of knowing Jesus. Mm -hmm. 
and one thing I used to do in college was I loved to memorize poetry and recite it. And um, so I decided to do the same thing with the gospel and uh, sort of internalize and intensify my relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I memorized the first five chapters of um, Matthew and recited them out loud to myself. And, um, it's even like the genealogy? <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, I couldn't. Did, I did soup to nuts. I wanted that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I cut. I cut in on what you're saying. So, so, how, so you memorize the first five chapters of Matthew, and 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 how did that impact you? All of a sudden, I felt like I was one of the disciples. <laughs> I felt like I knew Jesus, the thirteenth disciple. <laughs> And uh, it was an amazing feeling. So I didn't feel the need to. I got. I had gotten what I wanted was an intense sense of what Jesus' presence would have felt like had mm-hmm. I been with him. And uh, so that was uh, a profound experience. And um, then later, I. Uh, came across the passage in Philippians. Mm-hmm. And that was important to me because I was in graduate school at the time and decided was not happy. Mm-hmm. Um, what they did at the University of Illinois was they accepted every student who applied. And then they, if they, uh, they had all had to take English composition and if they couldn't pass the course, they couldn't go on. Okay. And so this left hundreds of students each year being sort of washed out of the program. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I didn't like being a part of that. I thought it was a sort of a uncaring way to cut down the student uh, size of the student body mm-hmm. without doing any hard work of making decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so uh, this struck me as an amazing verse. It made me decide that I would uh, Joined the Peace Corps. Hmm. And I uh, was invited to become a teacher in West Africa at a teacher training college, and I accepted that. And that began my journey overseas about five years living in the African village and teaching in the African teacher training college. I know that Laos and Iran are part of your life. Did those follow immediately after that, or were those at a different time? Um, Laos followed after that, uh, and Iran followed uh, 
considerably after that. A, a while later, okay. Mm. So I'm going to jump in here on that segue too. And Nancy McArdle encouraged me to hear about, quote, narrow and dangerous escapes, unquote, from Laos and Iran. So I, so I, I would love to hear, I, I haven't heard, I don't think I've heard these stories. So I would love to hear about those. Um, one from Iran involved our, my, our family, my wife and daughter. We were told this is the beginning of the revolution, Khomeini revolution. Okay. And we've been told to pack our bags and uh, put them in storage. Not our immediate travel baggage, but uh, mm -hmm. anything we wanted to take back to the United States. And then we had a day for evacuation. And um, <clears throat> so uh, our daughter was one year old at the time, mm -hmm. uh, Julia, and she was so good. I couldn't believe it. I still can't believe that she's so good and so tolerant. Mm -hmm. uh, was comfortable with having to put up with so much. Um, but Um, we um, got on a bus and the road to the airport was so crowded with vehicles fleeing uh, Tehran because <clears throat> um, Khomeini was on his way to the city to take over. He was no Biden. For sure. Different strategy for uh, uh, transfer of power there. Um. And so um, we, uh, the streets, the boulevard, the main boulevard in the city was very broad and beautiful. It had beautiful broad sidewalks, but the traffic area was solidly blocked that mm -hmm. There was no way any vehicle could have moved other than snail space. So our bus driver went on the sidewalk, sat on his horn, and people scattered. Scattered as, the, as this bus is going down the sidewalk. Yeah. And we got to the airport, and we had to stand in line for at least an hour, waiting to find out if we'd get on the plane. We didn't okay. even know we'd be on the plane. And, uh, Julia just never complained. Just, she just <laughs> took it all in. <clears throat> it's, I mean, it's almost it's almost out of a movie or something. The uh, the yeah, on the sidewalk. The parents are worried they might have to spend the night at the airport or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. I'm with mommy and daddy. <laughs> she, yeah, she she was fine with it all. Um, was there also a, 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 a Laos escape? Yes, there was. <clears throat> this one it was a little more dramatic. It was much later. And um, uh, my wife and I were uh, planning to leave 
in a few months. My normal tour of duty would be up. But um, she, um, we, uh, so we had our, we made arrangements to separate from her family for a while and they were going to, we were going to leave them some money so they mm -hmm. could go to Thailand if they, Northeastern Thailand, they'd feel safer. Okay. <clears throat> and um, so uh, uh, one Friday morning, no, one Saturday morning, we had decided to wash all our clothes and get them ready for the next week. Mm -hmm. And somebody came to our house on a motorcycle. Uh, Honda 50 was a motor scooter. And uh, was, we promoted it to a motorcycle. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> said, you've got 10 minutes. 10 minutes. To, Get your papers and mm. um, grab a suitcase of things and get to the airport because this will be the last plane out. And uh, <clears throat> so we did that, and I had my own, we had our own Honda 50, and her brother rode on one on the back of it. And, um, we went to the rendezvous place, but, um, before, while we were looking up to the, looking towards this point, uh, my wife's brother was at risk. He was about 15 or so, mm -hmm. and he was a cadet at the National Military Academy. And even though he had been a prisoner. Well, he had been a prisoner of war because he was a cadet. Okay. But um, this was before he was arrested. And um, so my wife suggested that I, we better see him before we left. And so I, uh, drove out to the uh, national headquarters, military headquarters for the Lao army. And um, <clears throat> had a broad road going up to the main entrance. And I got on my Honda 50 and went on that. I had been, been there to the academy to see him and I knew his office, commanding mm -hmm. officer and um, so, but I, when I got up to the edge, of, to the beginning of the approach to the military camp, I saw they had changed the guards and they now had communist guards at the gate. And it was too late to turn around without looking. Suspicious. Suspicious. So one of those blind moments when I, didn't know what I was doing, but I was just doing it anyway. I, I kept going. 
what could happen. And as I get up, got up closer to the guard, I realized the guard was younger than my brother, brother-in-law. He's just a kid. Just a kid. And uh, the French had controlled the military in Laos for years, and mm -hmm. controlled the training and stuff. And as I approached up to this, came up to this guy, I thought he would say, stop, let me see your papers. And instead, <laughs> poor little kid snapped to attention and saluted me. <laughs> and I went through. I mean, if I had a Honda 50, I had to be a high-ranking officer. You, you were a high-ranking officer. Because the... <laughs> these guys were really from the bottom, from the countryside. <laughs> did you salute back or did you, or did you just keep going? No, that would have been un-French. Oh, okay. Oh, so so an officer does not salute back. Well, I don't know. Just, <laughs> you don't worry about what you you need to do you worry about what whether he's been respectful yeah okay i got it um, <laughs> again I, again this feels like out of a movie you know yeah uh, trying to infiltrate the the base and not knowing if you get past the guards and then the guard <laughs> salutes you uh, also um maybe a so peter I found sellers the commander. movie <laughs> i found the commander of the cadets and he said you better get your brother-in-law out of here now. So he said, I'll tell him to get ready. And we drove out of there on his Honda 50. Okay. It was amazing. And so, and so then you brought the you brought your brother to that rendezvous that you you that had been set up for you for the last flight out, that sort of thing. Am I understanding um, the timeline right? That was that was about that time. Okay, but um, he was. We weren't planning to take them with us when we left. Okay, because they were in Vientiane, they were in a good place to be. Um, Vientiane was an easy place to get across the Mekong River to get to Thailand. Okay, um, and uh, so that's the. Uh, wow. Well, Wild. Yeah. I think we have about time for really one more question. You know, and I, and I, for those at home, I, I prep, a, I give folks in advance a, a whole uh, uh, menu of options. So, you know, I'm going to ask Tom to pick one more thing he like to chat about for, you know, it could be EFM, could be uh, coronavirus, you know, management. <laughs> Um, could be GBAO. What's one thing in particular that, Tommy, you like to share most? I like I like to share sort of the continuity of the transition from uh, being overseas to being here. Sure, that'd be great. The Episcopal Church thing. So I had developed a strong relationship with the Episcopal Church, and had donated something like $100 or something towards the construction of the new church in the uh, countryside. Mm -hmm. And that, um, and the Bishop of West Africa, the Anglican Bishop of West Africa delivered that money to the village after the war so they could 
build that church. And <clears throat> some of the money had come from uh, St. Thomas Church in New York City. Okay. It was actually about a thousand dollars. And um, so when we came home, I went to uh, first Sunday. I went to church. I had an African outfit. It was about the only. It was the most decent pair of clothes I had. <laughs> On Sunday, I showed up in church uh, with this outfit. It was very elegant, but um, and uh, so I we lived near, fairly near church, and I uh, went regularly to church while I was in America. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then about this time, the um, church was going through the liturgical reform of, uh, of um, so the, the new prayer book era. New prayer book. And uh, I really related to that especially to the, um, the uh, promise, baptismal promises. Mm -hmm. the, the, the new questions in the baptismal covenant that emerged that in the prayer book. Yes. And that fit in. And I was also simultaneously going to graduate school and getting an MBA. And I'd just taken my um, accounting courses and was invited to be treasurer of St. James <laughs> the next 10 years. And while I was doing that, um, I uh, got interested in the um, promises, mm. baptismal promises. And I also um, got interested in the church's new teaching series. Mm -hmm. And I coordinated that studies with the uh, those studies with uh, subject matter studies on uh, education or prisons or the various things that GBIO took up. And GBIO was the perfect fit for me because now I could find a place where I could be active and grow with the church. And uh, so I did that for 10 years and uh, yeah, for, for those of you who are listening, you know, part of what Tom is alluding to just to flesh it out is, uh, you know, part of, of the baptismal liturgy that exists now are these questions where you uh, ask if people will strive for justice and peace and respect the dignity of every human being. Uh, that language was not part of our baptismal liturgy prior to that. Um, so what, what Tom grew up with when he was a choir boy at St. Thomas, that was not part of the, the worship at that time. Um, but when Tom was coming back um, into the States, um, the Episcopal Church was uh, expanding its understanding of that, that baptism committed people to a lives of justice. Um, so just a, uh, those questions that are almost old now uh, were new in the late 70s and early 80s um, in the time Tom's talking about. Um, right. And so um, 
in some ways, Tom's. When I got into EFM. After 10 years of that, I got involved in EFM because I wanted to see how the life of the church and the history of the church had, um, had evolved. Evolved over time. Over time. So again, for those that are at home, EFM is, is a academic uh, seminary level education program, um, uh, but not designed for priests or clergy. It's, it's designed mm -hmm. for lay folks to be able to uh, receive the, sort of this, the same deep theological training that, that ordained folks get. So learning about scripture, learning about the church history, learning about theology. And so Tom has uh, went through that and, and now is actually a leader in that. He, he, Tom is passing along what he's learned to, to newer generations that are still doing EFM. Um, right. Yeah, it is. In some ways, I'm jealous. The, part of the excitement of that now for me is, as that is narrowing down and sort of closing up in some ways and opening up in others. Because EFM was perfectly designed for uh, our age because mm. it's mostly by computer. Mm. Um, small groups connected uh, through uh, computers. So you're doing it personally every week for three hours in conversation. And so this you're doing that on Zoom kind of things what, during it's, pandemic? Yeah, I mean, that's, yes. This is where, uh, if any place is a good place to be now, there's a good place for EFM. They have 6,000 students worldwide. That's amazing. Enrolled. All enrolled automatically on the computers. Yeah, uh, you know. And it was our senior warden, uh, Karen Meredith, who managed that transition from red binder notebooks written by professors at the University of the South School of Theology to uh, textbooks, regular textbooks. And, uh, and so just, yeah, so Karen, just, it, like it was a former senior uh, warden at St. James's who's since, yes. does she live in Tennessee now? Where, where, where is oh, Karen? Yes. She's in Tennessee, at, so it's, it's at Sewanee. Um, yeah. She went from St. James, senior warden, to being director of that program. And, and, yeah, and she it, really made it her own. Sanitary job. Yep, so yep. What, what I'm... I'm not teaching anymore, but what I'm, I like to be active in doing things. So one of the things we do is we try to develop our habitus, 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 mm -hmm. our daily routine. Mm -hmm. And I, as an exercise, have written a, um, a creed. Hmm. And I've trying to, and then with the situation with the pandemic, as suited my method of studying, which is to um, listen to others closely, learn from others, and also listen to our, myself. Mm -hmm. 
learn from uh, myself and uh, learn from God through listening to myself and hearing God and other people in uh, various ways. And, um, and it's worked. I think I've gotten a, I've made the whole area of cosmic Christianity mm-hmm. more important to me, more a part of my personal daily life as I ex- go through this experience of writing and modifying and living with a creed that's always changing. I'm you, always seeing something new. You're you're sitting at your desk. Do you have easy access to that creed? It seems I believe in God, the source of all love, truth, strength, power, light, and life, who reveals God's self in creation, ourselves, each other, and uniquely in the life teachings, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe that a respectful and loving relationship with God, ourselves, each other, and all the rest of creation liberates us from the tyranny of fear, ignorance, oppression, sin, and death, and leads us into the fullness of life, wholeness, healing, forgiveness, justice, peace, abundance, love, hope for the ultimate transmutation of the reality of evil into good, and joyful participation with all humankind in God's continuous acts of co-creation and glory. And um, <clears throat> those are the things that struck me that I wanted to say something about. That's, that's wonderful. We probably should uh, uh, stop there, which is a wonder, uh, that creed is in a, as St. James Priest, I'm beginning to think about how we could share that creed more, you know, when we use it on a Sunday morning sometime. Uh, but I'll, uh, I'll hold off on that for now and just say, I want to wrap up our time by saying, uh, Tom, thank you very much for sharing from your life. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for listening. <laughs>